an entire book, an entire life. On the page, these might look like the stones of a ruin strewn by time and weather, but I was here. I'm Michael Coyle, professor of English at Colgate University and a, a scholar especially interested in, in modernist poetry. And I'm Alan Swenson, an associate professor of German at Colgate University and a translator of Nietzsche, among other things, and very interested in the literature of his time. This is the third episode of Transatlantic Wisdom, our podcast, sponsored by America Centrum. And today, we're going to be talking about two extraordinary modernist women. And the first of them... Marie von Ebner-Eschenbach, born in Moravia in 1830 to Count Dubsky, and then married later to Count Ebner-Eschenbach. She died in 1916 in Vienna, and was known throughout her life as one of the important psychological novelists in German literature. And I, I just hasten to add, born in 1830, but it's still our contention that this is a very modern writer. Our second writer is the American Sarah Manguso, born in Boston in 1974, educated at Harvard, got her MFA from the Iowa Workshop, in 2007, she won the Joseph Brodsky Rome Prize. She's been published in Harper's, in the New York Times, in the Paris Review. She's widely acclaimed. She's written memoirs. She's written fiction. But today, we're going to be looking at a, a book that she calls 300 Arguments, but that we're going to, to suggest are very usefully understood in the context of this tradition of the post-Nietzschean aphorism in the tradition of modern wisdom literature. So, Alan, that aphorism that you started us with, what strikes you about it? An entire book, an entire life. Part of what caught my attention was that you and I first encountered these in English, and then I started looking at the German originals and noticed that it had been translated as, a great book contains an entire life, uh, which mistranslates the first half, but it also adds the contains. And I like about Ebner Eschenbach's aphorisms that they are incomplete. They do demand that you engage in them. So uh, an entire book, an entire life forces you to consider what she means by that. Contains, mm -hmm. is, uh, implies, suggests. And that gap between those, those two propositions unstated. The fancy academic word for that is paratactic. And it's one of the signs of Ebner Eschenbach's modernity, right? Rather than following the example of those 18th century writers who are going to spell everything out for you, so there's no possibility of mistake. 
her writing requires an active reader and interpretation. And that's interesting in particular because you and I both, I think, initially had a somewhat skeptical stance toward her precisely because of the epigram that defines how she sees an aphorism at the beginning of this collection, which, by the way, is perhaps in our time now the work she's best known for, the most often read work, are her aphorisms. And she begins it with the epigram, an aphorism is the last link in a long chain of thought. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I both were thinking, oh, she's implying somehow now that this idea is finished and I'm presenting it to you. But the more I read these aphorisms, the clearer it becomes to me they're anything but that. And then I look back at that epigram and and it strikes me. She's not saying that uh, this is the ultimate conclusion of a chain of thoughts, but rather just the final link. And they all have the feeling as you read them that in fact you have to start and work backwards now, that what really matters is that chain of thought that this link is going to provoke. Mm. It's curious then, like precisely where the writing stops, she hopes, expects that the readers will carry carry it further. It's not complete. It's not self-enclosed. And oftentimes her writing as as modern aphorisms tend to do, turn on paradox and antithesis. It's not strictly a rational connection. And it's not simply a matter of you read it and you nod your head and say, true that. There's often surprise that that comes, certainly with the, the best of these, and there are a lot of them that are really good. But Alan, for our our English readers, I think it's important to to share what what you've been saying to me since we started reading her together, that uh, the one American, the one translation into English, actually this was this was implicit in what you were just saying about the opening, the the, the one that you began with. There's work to be done still. Very much so, and and I think she was very aware of that. Another one of her brief aphorisms that I think exactly about this, um, she wrote, the spirit of a language is revealed most clearly through its untranslatable words. Mm. And oftentimes, one of the things I've found in, in comparing the translations with the original German is that the idea got lost because she used a word that has no one-to-one translation correspondence mm-hmm. to an English word. So, the translators paraphrased and the logic of the original aphorism got lost. That lo- aphorisms are, I think you and I, uh, we disagree about many things about aphorisms, but we agree very much that precision of language is essential to them. Yeah. These writers were, all of them, very self-conscious of their language and of their form, of the way that these aphorisms are shaped. So, again, Ebner Eschenbach would seem remote from 21st century readers in lots of ways. An aristocrat, 19th century, but there's something very modern about her. She still has a lot to say to us. And in in fact, there are a handful of places that that we've noted where if, if we were talking about this with 
students or, or new readers, we'd have to explain, like the one about the old servants in the house. But for the most part, these still feel very modern to me. And and even on points like that, I one of the things I often find missing in talking to students these days is it seems to me that um, we have generation for generation an ever thinner sense of our past, that we are a very presentist society. But there's a great deal of value, I think, in, in understanding earlier notions of practically anything, of social hierarchy, of gender, whatever. A lot of what Marie von Ebner Eschenbach has to say about women and men, about gender, for example, I think probably would strike modern readers as very outdated. But I think the insights of a very intelligent 19th century woman commenting on those relationships in her time are invaluable to us to, to understand how we get to where we are. Mm. Do you want to give an example of, of one of her observations about gender? There are many of them, and I think they're an interesting window into the time. This one has always caught my attention. Let us not demand honesty in a woman as long as women are brought up to believe that their primary purpose in life is to please. Hmm. I'm also interested in one that you called to my attention, namely, woe betide the woman who in time of need is unable to face up to adversity like a man. Why I'm particularly interested in that is that the English edition mistranslated it. <laughs> and her original is a great deal more interesting that uh, if we were to do it a bit more literally, woe to the wife who in a case of need is not able to stand up to her husband. Mm. So it's, it's not about men and women, it's about husbands and wives. It is, I suppose, about men. You could also translate it as man, man and woman. It is the German words Frau and Mann, but in this context, ihr und Mann, it's clear that her husband is what the essence of this is. It would sound very, very funny in English if I translated it literally. Woe to the woman who in case of need can't stand up to her man. We would make it sound more modern. <laughs> hmm. Her husband. So the second one, the, the, the first one you offered isn't marked by the, the usual generation of paradox and antithesis. This one is... But the, the one thing that, that, that your precise translation leaves behind that I thought, I thought was funny and useful was the idea of stand up to adversity like a man, you know, take it like a man. So is that not actually there in Ebner Eschenbach's original? No, not at all. It's, it's oh, about her much. being willing to stand up to her husband. <laughs> I'm so how glad you're how here. How important it is that she's capable of that. Mm. She, she, by the way, had a very good marriage, very happy marriage, although unhappy only in the sense that, that she and her husband were very disappointed that they never had children. Ah. Would you call Ebner Eschenbach a new woman by the, the standards of the day? Was she feminist? No, not really. And that, that's, that's why I say I think it's important to look at her aphorisms when she does talk about gender. They are not particularly feminist, but they also are not, they don't 
apologize for women either, that, that there is a clear sense of her rights and powers in life too. But it is a 19th century one. I see. Of course, with a 21st century writer like Sarah Mangusa, questions of gender are going to be right up front much of the time. And I, I noticed some moments that in Ebner Eschenbach that, that might anticipate this. But for instance, Sarah Manguso writes that, and, and her first person plural here, I think is not gender specific. She says, we hide in plain sight in our bodies. But her own embodied, embodiedness, right? As a woman, as a woman who's faced chronic illness, kept up her, her career as a writer, her writing is often very gender-specific. In certain ways, trying to figure out how to, how to say this, because Manguso is hard to summarize, right? That's one of the reasons why she turns to these short truth statements, right? Manguso doesn't call them aphorisms. She calls them arguments, but they don't work really like arguments at all, right? Arguments are, are rational. They, they point in one way, whereas there's, there is a lot of deliberate ambiguity and self-contradictions in Manguso's writing. I think the, the two are not as different as they might appear on, on that point. If there is something that goes through all of Ebner Eschenbach's aphorisms, I think it is the deep conviction that what we see on the surface of human lives is very different from what actually goes on underneath the surface. So in a way, yes, we hide in plain sight. Another one of Ebner Eschenbach's aphorisms I like very much, where she writes, the, the most unbearable hypocrites are those who have every pleasure born to them carried to baptism by duty. And uh, that may not, it may take a while to sort of unravel that because we don't live in a world where we are familiar with somebody carrying your child to baptism, having somebody else do it. But I think she very interestingly uses this idea of a mechanism, a tradition but it's about self-deception here, that, that rather than admit that we're doing something out of pleasure, we rename that pleasure that came to us spontaneously, that was born to us, we rename it so that it looks like a duty to everybody else, and we feel vir <laughs> virtuous. It seems to me here that, that she reads a little bit like a, you know, a, a daughter of Nietzsche. I think that's that's absolutely right in the sense she was not the philosopher scholar that Nietzsche was, but I think she was very much concerned like he was with the degree to which we don't know our own psyches well enough. And that was, as I mentioned in our, our introduction, she, she was during her lifetime best known for what even then were described as psychological novels. Observations, psychologically astute observations. Is that what, what was meant? Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, that, that calls up the aphorism that you mentioned to me recently, where she suggests that whoever is a seer 
has no need to observe. Hmm. I'm so glad you brought that one up. I probably misquoted it. I just did that one from memory, but I can I think find you got it, it quickly, I think. I think you got it right. Because that is an important strain in Ebner Eschenbach. And uh, she, she writes, nature is truth. Art is highest truth. I'd like to talk about this aspect of Ebner Eschenbach's writing. Nature is truth. Art is highest truth. Because that to me, Alan, also seems Nietzschean. If art were just the observation of nature, there's no way it could be a higher truth than nature. So what is, what is she proposing when she says nature is truth, art is the highest truth? I, I don't think I could give a, uh, even remotely definitive answer to that. But in terms of your suggestion that maybe she's rather Nietzschean in that, I think that may be true if what she um, and Nietzsche meant at that moment was art is not the fine arts necessarily, but art in, in the sense of what man makes, mm -hmm. what humans make. Mm -hmm. That for Nietzsche, certainly, I think that's part of what he's getting at in his analysis of the ascetic ideal is this problem with us taking the truths of natural science and seeing them as the highest thing, whereas in fact many of them have made human life worse, that in the end the valuable thing is is in fact the meaning, which is the only one we have as humans, the meaning that we create. Right. That's why Nietzsche writes of Darwin, his doctrine is true but deadly. Right. Yeah it's, yeah. it's true, but we can't live with that that kind of truth. So the the kind of truth that we're talking about then is something that that we create, and I, I like the way that you put it. Not art in the usual conventional bourgeois sense, but something else, something less comfortable, something more profound. And Ebner Eschenbach reaches those kinds of moments. And honestly, I found myself recognizing more of them as I continued to go back to her, you know, recognizing more of them than I did reading her through the first time. Although in part, <laughs> that's because you've observed so many times why the translation is imprecise. Yeah, it is. It is sad because these are, they, on the surface, her aphorisms look like we expect aphorisms to look. They look short and they look simple. And often it's puzzling when you look at what Nietzsche calls aphorisms. Some of them are three pages long. Uh, and yet he refers to them as aphorisms. But I think with hers, that's where I began to notice that the translation available in English today but it was done too quickly, that as if, the, in fact, the content of these was simple itself, not just the appearance and the mm -hmm. the wording. And so, it, in a way, it's not surprising that we've several times come across ones like, woe to the woman who, in case of need, is not able to stand up to her husband, being actually mistranslated. And if we think that, you know, nature is truth, but art is, is highest truth, then 
It, it should quicken our sense that we need to pay attention to the language, as these writers did. Yeah. Because the language is doing some, it's making something new, right? And I think that was implicit in, in what you were saying about art a moment ago. Yeah. It's an idea that, that I think came up a lot in her lifetime, and maybe we don't talk about it as much now. You and I have talked about T.H. Huxley before as well, since you mentioned Darwin, um, another evolution, proponent of evolu the evolutionary theory. and Darwin's he, bulldog. Yeah, Darwin's bulldog. He was very interested in the this contrast between state of art and the state of nature and the state of art. And, and I think that is probably in part what she's referring to and what Nietzsche's as well. That is the state of things as they occur in nature, but the state of art is whatever we humans make of it. So, mm -hmm. uh, a garden is state of art for him, i.e. it wouldn't be there if we didn't invest energy into it. I don't know the, the phrase in the original German, but German literature has given the world so much on this particular question. Goethe, uh, I only know it in translation, art is art because it is not nature. You couldn't get a more simple definition than that. But what that that means, we've been thinking about it for <laughs> the next two centuries. What does it? What does that mean for art? What does that mean for its significance? And I think all of the writers in this tradition that that we're talking about understand this, and it, it puts a real burden on the language. Precision becomes paramount. And, and that's why I'm so struck by all of your observations about the only English translation we have right now of Ebner Eschenbach's aphorisms. Yeah. And, and, and note, too, she did publish this book as a separate book. There might be aphoristic statements in her novels, but in this case, she meant for these to be read as a collection, right? Yeah, very much so. And the German title for the book is simply... Aphorismen. Which means the same thing, right? Yeah. The other thing that I think maybe in a slightly tense way is similar about what she's doing and what Nietzsche was doing is that her aphorisms also are about, um, in many if not most cases, about morality and about trying to figure out the relationship between the appearance of morality and whatever uh, human psychology is actually in relationship to that. And it, it fits in nicely with something you and I encountered talking about aphorisms, that being the good scholars that we were, we traced it back to Hippocrates who wrote the first aphorisms, and they were not at all like what we're looking at now. They were pretty much, uh, I don't know how you characterize them, um, Life is short, art is long, attributed to him. Often they're just careful statements of a medical practice. Yeah. <laughs> um, but someone once observed in looking at the history of this that, that it, the connection between that and what happens now is not that small, that the aphorisms were kind of rediscovered in the Renaissance by people who were looking to heal not the human body, but the body state. So... It's, in other words, now it's about human relationships among ourselves in society. Um, so increasingly, these things become about astute 
psychological insight into what we think we do, what we actually do. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you send my, my thoughts back to the aphorism from Sarah Manguso. On the page, these might look like the stones of, of ruin strewn by time and weather, but I was there. Well, why does that matter that, that she was there? You know, the, the, the idea of the aphorism as a fragment of a, of a bigger truth that somehow contains the force of the whole, that's been familiar for two centuries now. Mm-hmm. But Manguso's insistence that she's still there seems to me a more 21st century emphasis. What's the relation of the author's identity to this truth? Is it simply another expression of that embodiedness that we were talking about a few minutes ago? I find that complicated, and that's where I I like her, her, uh, if we're going to call them aphorisms and not arguments, like them best are the moments when she, she too is sort of scratching at the surface, looking at the difference between what we appear to do and what we actually do. That the one I particularly liked was, uh, I've taken on bad habits in order to grow closer to certain others. Watching an inane television show, <laughs> playing a video game, drinking. The habits lasted, but I never minded because they weren't mine. They were just affectations of other people's. Mm. I'm sorry. That just stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm just interested in the in the idea too that I, she seems to be very self aware, though, in this regard that she knows these are not her habits, but that what appears to us on the surface um, often doesn't really get that close to what is going on psychologically. And I think she and Ebner Aschenbach are both interested in that. I think so too. Since we're talking about fragments, and since we've been talking about how gender functions in these two collections, here are two more from Manguso. She writes, The word fragment is often misused to describe anything smaller than a bread box, but an 800-page book is no more complete or unbroken than a 10-line poem. That's confusing size with integrity. (laughs) <laughs> an ant is not a fragment of an element of an elephant, except orthographically. <laughs> that's that's clever. Orthographically, right? Elephant. And then this one is kind of funny. And there's a there's a sort of humor in Manguso that um, you'll you'll tell me if you if you see it in Ebner Eschenbach as well. Manguso writes the phrase "great woman." sounds strange because it's seldom used outside the phrase behind every great man is a great woman. (laughs) (laughs) I think there is a kind of of, uh, more pointed humor in Manguso that is more a part of our time even than uh, of Ebner Eschenbach's that uh, she comes from a time where a lot of the things that Manguso talks about and discusses uh, weren't discussed in polite society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she has to she has to get at them indirectly. 
Yeah. Man- Manguso can talk directly about our sexual relations. And Edna she does. does so only indirectly. Yeah. Anyone who's uncomfortable with Rousseauian, like, you know, uh, very overt discussions of intimate behavior might find Manguso's 300 arguments uncomfortable, even though she, she clearly enjoys a little shock value. I don't think Manguso offers any of these arguments merely for that. Mm-hmm. And I, I also think for Manguso, I think she believes in, in a certain sense that universal truths are, are possible. They can, they can be arrived at from a, an, un, an unflagging and oh, I'm suddenly at a, at a loss for the right word here, unforgiving self-examination. Like she's, she's really honest about her own foibles. She's not always the hero. Of, of these stories. But I, I think she does expect that, that a, a, a very honest self-evaluation can lead her to observations about the human condition that would be true for almost everyone. I'd have to think about that, yeah. Um, I, because I do think that that is at the heart of aphoristic writing is the conviction that we can only get close to those things. We actually never get to them. But also that from the fragment, you can reconstruct the whole and possibly, you know, an individual life is a, you know, in this way is a fragment of humanity that contains, you know, the, the, the germ of the whole in it. This is an extension and it, it may be philosophically indefensible, <laughs> But I think it's part of the power of these things. So it's not like I read 300 arguments and I'm thinking, well, oh, man, Manguso is a really complex and intense character. They have their force when I, I feel like, you know, even as a man reading this, this, this often gender-specific book, no, I feel that too. I know what she means. It's a little bit easier for me with Ebner Eschenbach because she will sometimes write about the condition of women, but there's not anything like the same emphasis on her embodiedness, right? On any differences that it might make that she experiences life in a female body. But again, uh, this, this question of fragments and its relation to the aphorism is form. There's a, another moment in Mangusa where she says, I like writing that is unsummarizable. That is interesting. Right? So, if the artist has done her job, if her precision, if the level of precision that's needed is achieved, there's no way to to say it any more briefly than the writer's done it. But as we think on the writing, it becomes, you know, it expands in in our response. Yeah, yeah. I think that's always a, the difficulty of t- of talking of talking about any art form is that it almost always forces us to. I guess we perhaps don't always say summarize to paraphrase, <laughs> and sooner or later I think we do again and again notice that the art disappears when you summarize or paraphrase. Yeah, 
And when the art disappears, so too does, and, and now we're, we're back to where this part of our conversation started, so too does the truth. Hmm? I, I notice with Manguso how often her writing becomes metadimensional, how often she talks about the nature of, of her enterprise. And we get some of that in Ebner Eschenbach as well, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, one that, one in particular that I, I don't know that I've fully thought through, but it strikes me as very closely related to her epigram that a, an aphorism is the last link in a long chain of thought. She writes in, in um, one of her aphorisms, to pursue a thought, how apt this word is. We hurry after a thought, catch it, it gets away, and the chase begins anew. Victory at last rests with the stronger. If it's the thought, it does not let us rest. It crops up again and again, teasing, tormenting, mocking our inability to catch it. If, however, the strength of our mind succeeds in overcoming it, the thought, then a blissful, inseparable alliance which lasts through life and death follows the fierce contest, and the res- ch- children who result from this conquer the world. <laughs> if we overcome it, she writes. I, I, I would have to look at that one in the original German, because I, somehow I doubt that overcomes. But in any case, somehow, if, if we win in our chase for the idea, that becomes a, an extremely productive part of our, our being and gives birth to uh, new ideas. But as I say, this is one I actually have not really worked through fully, but it struck me this time reading through precisely because we were looking at her definition of aphorism. Yeah. So in any case, I think Nietzsche at the beginning of Genealogy of Morality reminded us that an aphorism that's honestly coined hasn't been understood just because it's been read through, but actually after reading it through, we have to start with the true art of interpretation. And he gives us an example, and it's long. He means it it takes a good deal of hard work. And in a sense, I think that's what Ebner Eschenbach seems to be suggesting here about ideas that are going to be valuable to us, is that they require a long pursuit well, that long pursuit, Alan, when, when you said a moment ago that you weren't sure that you had thought it through, that's how I feel about all of the best moments in both these books, mm-hmm. even after yeah. I've thought about it, you know, for quite a long time. Yeah. It's not like, okay, got it, can file that away next. They continue to work on us. And sometimes, like there were a few occasions, I, I picked this book up again after about a month. And I realized that I was seeing one differently than I'd, I'd remembered it. And, and that's really exciting. I love the self-consciousness of, of, of this form. Yeah. Can, here, going back to Manguso, this is on uh, page 25, if you want to follow this with me. There are several in a row that are, that are about writing. Slowly... Slowly, I accumulate sentences, Manguso writes. I have no idea what I'm doing. 
until suddenly it reveals itself almost done. Now, the, the way that I would understand that one brings us back to this question of the, of the relation between writing to truth and the idea that art is a higher truth than, than nature. She doesn't realize what she's doing until she finds the right language. But that's her as a, as a writer. In the very next aphorism, she writes, I hate wasting time and I hate wasting space. I hate chatting and I hate chatter. I hate clutter. In college, I was once accused of owning only six objects. In my dating days, as soon as I anticipated going to bed with someone, it seemed absurd, irrational to further resist the inevitable. If there's a good line in a book, I will copy out the line and sell the book. Now, we've, we've touched on this, this question several times already. The, the ways in which all of these things require an interpretation. What's the relation between this last proposition? If there's a good line in a book, I will copy out the line and sell the book. And then the sort of autobiographical moments we get in the sentences immediately before it. Why does it matter that as soon as she figured that she was going to go to bed with this guy, she just want to stop resisting it? What's the relation between desire and acting? What's the relation between that and seeing a line in a book that resonates for her, that sort of luminously emerges from the rest of the text and copying that out, sort of repurposing it. Do you, do you see what I'm asking? I do, yeah. I mean, I think it's there in the opening as well that wasting does not immediately seem to be the same thing as clutter. And likewise, these, these final propositions, it strikes me, uh, in the case of resisting going to bed with somebody, uh, wasting time. In the case of, if there's a good line in a book, I'll copy out the line and sell the book is maybe, I don't know if it's wasting time, but clutter. In other words, uh, mm -hmm. I'll reduce it back to the six things that I'm going to own. I'll keep the one line worth something <laughs> to me. And it, it's interesting to, to see that. This is, in a way, I think, perhaps related to what Ebner Eschenbach is trying to hint at in uh an entire book, an entire life. <laughs> that mm. A book that can't be excerpted to one sentence. Well, you've taken us back to where we started, and that's probably appropriate as I, as I look at the clock here. But I, I, I feel like we've, we're just getting started because both of these books are small. Both of them comprise aphorisms. Manguso's book is only 90 pages, and our translation of Ebner Eschenbach is about the same length. Yeah. You could, you could read them in a, in a sitting, but you wouldn't get anything. These yeah. are our nightstand books. Three or four of them in a sitting is about all I can take in without, without wasting them. 
if you if you're really going to engage them, if you're going to be the kind of reader that these books ask for, it's a handful at a time. I'm also really glad that you pointed you pointed to Mangusos. Slowly, slowly, I accumulate sentences. I have no idea what I'm doing until suddenly it reveals itself. Almost done. What I liked about that was that it directed my attention to two authors I've talked with you about many times, whom I love and I think are <laughs> in spirit related to the aphorists, even though neither of them wrote aphorisms. And that is Montaigne and Virginia Woolf, whose writing to me seems to follow this pattern as well of sentence after sentence, idea or whatever, without without knowing in advance where they're going to get. And, and in fact, maybe it brings us back as well to Schlegel's notion that it's absolutely imperative for the spirit that we combine having a system and not having a system. Yeah. Um, not knowing in advance where we're headed, because otherwise we then chop legs off and arms and corners to make everything fit instead of letting things be what they are. Yeah. Wolf is a is a such an interesting case here because she didn't write aphorisms in the way that Ebdrashenbach or Manguso do. And yet to read Wolf's books, both her novels and, and her, her nonfiction books, there are aphorisms in their sentences that almost beg to be copied out, although of course we wouldn't throw a Virginia Wolf book away. <laughs> And 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 those individual sentences, that's what I think is so aphoristic about them is they are, in a way, you can't copy them out. They don't really have the same meaning when they're not embedded in what it was she was doing at the time. But but she and Montaigne, I think, both have that sense that all the, the wisdom that really matters to us in life is of a complexity that it can't be boiled down to simple, clear statements, that it's something that always requires coming at indirectly, maybe uh, working hard at, long at, and always being willing to recognize we didn't finally arrive. Yeah. Well, that's a great note to end on, I think. So next time, we're going to be talking about two journalists, really, both of whom were powerful aphorists. Karl Kraus, in German, and H.L. Mencken in English. This is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to do a little genre shift, but the, the power of aphoristic form is going to be our constant. And you were talking about Manguso's wit here. These are two wonderfully acerbic wits. Yeah. Yeah. Famously and infamously. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions 
on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening. Oh my God, what is the matter with me today? Andy, I hope you will cut all this and save me from looking like an idiot.